Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today is from Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I believe all of us want to enjoy the warmth and the company of good and quality friendships, especially friends who have been through and shared both good times as well as those tough times. Someone we can call our bestest friend. Someone whose commitment is from the heart, that's shown in practical, often sacrificial care and love and service for us. They are a source of encouragement, of sympathy, comfort, and support in our times of need. Such relationships are to be cultivated, especially among believers. Yet, like many things, this proverb reinforces the principle that just because a small amount of something is good doesn't mean necessarily and automatically that a whole bunch is better. It's a good thing, though, to build and establish friendships. To make friends or to keep friends, a person must be friendly themselves. Friends love at all times, not just because it's easy to love someone or, in, or, it's, in because, or it's in times of prosperity. Friends give more than they take. Friends give hearty counsel, not haughty advice. And friends are always gracious. Friends sharpen each other. Friends show pity in affliction. And friends trust each other. And friends rejoice in blessings that others receive. Friends don't, however, give advice where it's, before it's needed. They don't meddle in private affairs. They don't presume on time. They tri don't trivialize matters. They don't remember past faults. And in general, they're not self-centered. So when you find a true friend, do all you can to keep him. Other, friends, other Christians should make the best of friends, for blood is thicker than blood. And that is, Jesus' blood is thicker than any other bond. Jesus Christ, the eternal friend of our soul, did more than any friend would do. He laid down his life for us while we were still his enemies. This reminds us of our own need to confess our sins. I invite you to kneel where you are, if you will, in your name. So Peter went to Antioch. And our text this morning is about what happened there. And specifically what happened there is Paul confronted Peter for hypocrisy. This event had a significant impact on the church at that time. It was certainly one of the things that instigated the Jerusalem Council. Paul's confrontation of Peter happened after Paul's first missionary journey and before the Jerusalem Council in A.D. 48 or 49 is when they had this confrontation. And this was not long before Paul wrote the book of Galatians. So when Paul wrote these words, this was fresh in his mind. He remembers what he said. In Acts 15, verses 1 and 2, in the introduction to the Jerusalem Council, we read, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles 
and elders about this question. So this, there was a dispute in Antioch, and it was no small dissension or dispute, and they sent delegates to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council to determine what the truth was about this question. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The Jerusalem Council was the first church council, and it specifically addressed the issue of circumcision and whether or not it's necessary for the Gentiles. The text, this text is also significant in our Reformed traditions, in that it was central for debunking the myths of the Roman Catholic Church. This is one of the clearest scriptural proofs that Peter was not a pope as Rome has come to define the term. Galatians was central to turning Martin Luther onto the abuses of the church. If Paul could confront Peter and Paul could accuse Peter of sin and the Jerusalem council agrees with Paul on this question, then Peter is not a pope as the Roman church teaches that he was. So, in our text this morning, Paul publicly rebukes Peter. His rebuking of the Peter is not like his debunking of Peter's teaching of what Peter was doing was not like what the Judaizers were doing about Paul's teaching in Galatia. Paul was writing this book to the Galatians because he heard about what the Judaizers were doing over there. They were telling the believers there that they had to be circumcised in order to be closer to God, to be members of the community. And they were debunking Paul's teaching behind his back. But Paul does not do this to Peter. He doesn't go around whispering behind Peter's back that, oh man, he's doing naughty things over there. No, Paul withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Public sin requires public rebuke. The confession of sin should be as public as the sin itself. Paul practices what he later advised Timothy to do here. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 20, Paul gives Timothy instructions regarding elders, and he says, Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. Peter was an elder. Therefore, his sin needed to be publicly addressed. Even more, Peter was an apostle, one of the first Christians walked with our Lord on the earth. He's one of the twelve. His sin had every likelihood of hardening the hearts of wicked men and unjustly crushing the hopes of the innocent Gentile believers. Paul was very, Paul was very motivated to defend the Gentiles because he was their apostle. He was given a ministry to the apostles. We talked about this last week. They had, he'd been sent out to minister to the Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. And they were the seal of his apostleship. We read that in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 2. So Paul was very motivated. He loved these people. He's died for these people. He's given them the gospel. He's gone and he's ministered to them. He's been in chains for them. He's been stoned for them. And here they were being debased by somebody who they were looking up to. 
and Peter was to be blamed. So Paul withstood him to his face in verse 11. God is no respecter of persons, so neither was Paul. God is no respecter of persons. We talked about that last week. God does not show personal favoritism to any man. So he judges us on what is true and what is right, or what is wicked and what is wrong. And so Paul stands up for the truth the way God would have him. God is so great to compare to men that when God is on our side, who can be against us? And Paul knew that God was on his side. So he didn't back down one inch from stepping up to Peter. And even if the opponent is the rock upon which Christ will build his church, it doesn't matter who you are or who you seem to be. So what was the problem? What was Peter doing? He was breaking communion with the Gentiles. We read in verse 13. And the rest of, uh, sorry, in verse 12. Before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy in verse 13. My former pastor, Pastor Wilson, called what Peter and Barnabas did a mirror image hypocrisy. That's a good word for it. This is what he said. Most hypocrisy is public righteousness and private sin. This was, this was the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Outside was a beautiful tomb, and on the inside in the heart were dead men's bones. But Peter and Barnabas reversed this. Inside, they were orthodox. They knew that the gospel was for the Gentiles. They knew the truth. They believed that. But they were publicly sinful. They publicly denied that truth. And it's still hypocrisy. What's on the outside did not match what was supposed to be on what was on the inside. This kind of hypocrisy is particularly a problem when the person who's committing the hypocrisy has legitimate authority. It's when leaders or rulers, when they stand up, when they, when they, when they refuse to stand up and exercise the authority they have for what is true and what is just and what is right. It's for parents who know that one of their kids is in the wrong but show favoritism to him or her. For judges who don't stand up for the oppressed, even though they feel guilty about it, they feel bad about it. It's for leaders, political leaders, it's for teachers, it's for anybody who's in a position of authority. This, this hypocrisy can be a temptation. And the motivation for this is a fear of men. A fear of men. Peter feared those who were of the circumcision. In Jerusalem, many of the, the Jews had become Christians, and of those that had become Christians, many of them were leaders in their land. Many of them were Pharisees formerly. And they brought with them their assumptions about the new kingdom of God. They were still looking for an earthly kingdom, and so they were still requiring earthly works. The gospel is not about fear of men. The gospel is about fear of God. God's delivered us truth. 
He's delivered us a gospel in which Christ came, he died for us, and he loved us, and he loved us, and he teaches us how to love others. And what Peter did was not love. Peter oppressed the weaker brother because he feared those who were powerful in the church in Jerusalem. And the end result was nothing less than a compromise of the gospel. In 14 we read, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, Peter denied the gospel. It was a compromise of the gospel because the gospel is good news for the downtrodden. It's deliverance for the oppressed. So what was Paul's argument against what Peter did? We read about it in verses 14 through 21. It's the biggest chunk of our text. So in essence, Paul's argument here in verses 14 to 21 explains how Peter's hypocrisy denies the gospel. He starts out with a, a goose gander question. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? Well, in Galatians 2.14... If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the, Gentile, the Gentiles to live as Jews? Why do you have a double standard? We read in verse 12, Before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But now by his actions, he's saying that he was sinning when he was eating with the Gentiles. So Paul says, you were doing that, you were Christian and you were, you were eating with the Gentiles. If that was okay then, but it's not okay when these men come now, why is it okay for you? Why was it okay for you to eat with the Gentiles then? But now they're supposed to not eat with you unless they do some, they get circumcised. Paul knew that Peter had formerly confessed to the fact that Gentiles were saved. In Acts 10, verse 28. Peter, speaking to Cornelius in his house, said to them, You know how, unfaithful, how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. That was Peter's argument. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Peter had had a vision. God showed it to him. And then God brought him to Cornelius. And then God granted the Holy Spirit to these Gentiles. And Peter had to defend himself in Jerusalem as soon as he got back from that. But apparently he forgot. So he was kowtowing to the, uh, those who were of the circumcision in Antioch. Paul's argument in verses 15 and 16. He starts out in verse 15. Uh, we are Jews. In verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. We are Jews. In 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So we are, we are by nature Jews. But we are Christians more than more so. We are Jews knowing Jesus. 
Paul repeats himself in verse 16. He's very emphatic to make two very strong points. We are not justified by the works of the law. He says, first, we know that. And then he says it doctrinally or dogmatically. No flesh is justified by the law. And then, instead of being justified by the law, what the other thing that Paul repeats there is, instead we are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, in your Bible translations, unless you have the King James Version, it will probably read, faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so it'll read like this. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. The King James translates it, um, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And that we might be justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. I think their translation is a little better than ours. It doesn't change the meaning much. But justification and righteousness comes by nothing less than the faithfulness of Jesus. Jesus believed. Jesus had faith. And Jesus' faithfulness led him to the cross, and he died. It was Jesus' faithfulness that washes away our sins. It was the faith of Jesus that cleanses us. And Peter and Paul both knew this because Peter had direct, I mean, Jesus had directly revealed himself to them. Peter had walked with Jesus. He'd eaten with Jesus all through his ministry. Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and said, This is the way of salvation. Now, these things were seared in Paul's mind in a different way than they were for Peter. Peter was a, a fisherman. He, he was a Jew. He understood the Jewish epoch, the way the Jews thought. But Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was persecuting the church because he understood how that was so different from the law of the Jews. It was a major deal. Paul is vehement here. He's very upset with Peter because this is a big deal. God had done away with the old order. And this new order is all about the faith of Jesus Christ. That's bound to us by our belief in Jesus Christ. Paul is interested in eliminating the distinctions between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. He was ushering in a new era. He was also ushering in a new age, a new kingdom. The kingdom of God is here. And... As we'll read in chapter 3 of Galatians, as, we're get, as we get there, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This new church was based on the unified basis of our justification. This new community that Peter was violating. He was bringing division in there. He was separating himself out from other believers. The basis for that unity is in how we are justified, and it's by faith in Christ. The laws, the works of the law, will not save you. In verse 17 through 21, we read, 
But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? So if we are accurately labeled as sinners, it says, it says but if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, Christ, he's just made the point that we believe in Jesus, we know that Jesus saved us, we know that we're saved that way, but if, while that is the case, We ourselves also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Well, certainly not. We know that Christ is not a minister of sin. That's impossible. But how can we ourselves be found to be sinners? What's he talking about there? Well, he's referring back to verse 12, when Peter ate with the Gentiles. Before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. So if... The, if those of the circumcision are correct, if they're right, according to them, then Paul and Peter were sinners when they ate with the Gentiles. Did Christ make them sinners? And the answer is obviously no. The gospel is that Christ has redeemed us from our sin. On the contrary, once Jesus has come and delivered us this gift of salvation, we are idiots. We are stupid if we try to go back to the old way of redemption. The old way of salvation. We're not only stupid, but we're culpable. We're guilty. Verse 18. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. We are guilty. If Paul says, Christ delivered us from that. In fact, though that was the way I used to try to be saved. But now I've destroyed them in Christ. I've given that up. And if I try to build up the old way of salvation, I make myself a, a transgressor. Or, or I prove, or I, I, I recommend of myself. I teach, that, that I'm proving that I am a guilty sinner. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm making those things the way of salvation again. Formerly, that's what Paul did. You have to become circumcised in order to be saved. You have to come and bow down at Gamaliel's feet to be saved. You have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. And the Christians weren't doing that, so he started stoning them and dragging them off to jail. But God has stopped that, and Paul knows the truth now. It's been revealed to him. It's in his heart. It's bound there. He has, he has a gospel message for the Gentiles, and it's that you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. You need Jesus to be saved. You need nothing else. You need Jesus. That's it. In verse 19, Paul talks about well, 19, he says, says this, For I through the law died to the law, that I might live to God. Paul died to the law, and therefore it no longer binds him. He's free to live to God. So when he ate with the Gentiles, he was living righteously. He lives to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Christ has made all of this possible in his death, in the crucifixion. And he's freely given himself and his love for us. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loved Paul and gave himself for him. And Paul communicates then this again to the Gentile Christians. He loves them and he gives himself for them. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. You cannot trade this in for the Judaizers' version of the truth. You cannot trade Christ in for the Judaizers' version of the gospel because that would make Christ to have died in vain, which is impossible. How can Christ have died in vain? Christ was God. Christ was resurrected. His death was effective. It was powerful. So how does justification work? Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled, he, he fulfilled the law so that we are delivered from its punishments and its restrictions. Christ has shown us a better way. He loved me and gave himself for me. This is a better law, and it's the law of love. What are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. The law of love. And this is a gift of Christ to us. He shows us how to do that. And it's not by circumcision. This is resurrection law. The law resurrected. I mean, Christ fulfilled the law, but does that abolish the law? Does that erase the law? Does the law have no purpose anymore then? Paul argues about this in Romans. He says, by no means. The law teaches us how to love. But it's a law of grace. It's a law that's, that's fulfilled freely by the gift of Christ. In order for us to fulfill the law, we need to die to ourselves. And we need to get this straight because it's all too easy for us to confuse the issues here. There's one, this is one area where Christians frequently put the cart before the horse. And what I'm talking about is this. It's death, then life. Give it all over to God so that he can instruct you about how to be a steward of it. It's crucifixion, then resurrection. We always want to step over that little death part. Because that's the hard part. Giving it up. It's faith, then obedience. You know, we know that that's the way you're supposed to be, so I'm going to try and do the right thing, and it's going to look good, and God's going to bless that, because I'm doing the right thing, right? No, that's merit. That's works-based salvation. No, first we need faith. We need to approach God in gratitude, grateful for His grace that He's poured out, for the love He's shown down on us. And then when we do that, then He enables us to live obediently. And it's a life of, of gratitude. It's not something that we are forced to do. It's something that we do out of joy. All too often we approach our difficulties by attempting to do the right thing. But then when we look back in hindsight, we see that all of our 
intentions didn't work out so well. We have all kinds of problems with the fruit of the work that we've done. Our results don't correspond to our intentions at all. And the problem is not that God didn't want to bless us, or that God wanted to curse us, or God wanted to give us a hard time, or He's looking down at the world and saying, oh, how can I mess with your life today? No. The problem is, is that we got in the way. When we try to obey the law before giving up our life, we find that we will fail miserably every time. Paul was upset with Peter because he was denying the gospel. And what motivated Peter? Fear of men. Not the law of love. Because in trying to become all things to all men, Peter probably justified that. that it justified his actions in that way. He said, well, well, Gentiles were here. I'll make them comfortable. Well, now that the people of um, James' people are here, I'm going to try and be all things to all people here. He was trying to become all things to all men is probably how he justified it. And he was trying to appease those of the circumcision. But again, here Peter denied Christ again. The difference between Peter and Paul was that Paul was motivated by love. And Peter was motivated by fear of men. Paul was, Paul was proclaiming Christ and Peter was lying about him to the Gentiles. Paul says, to those who are of the law, become like those who are of the law. To those who are without law, become like those who are without law. He doesn't want anything to get in the way of sharing the gospel with people. But that wasn't what the issue was here in the church in Antioch. Here we had a body of people who were supposed to be in Christ. The law has been abolished for them, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Peter was denying that in Christ, that community. So we sometimes get in the way, and we fail, and we look at our lives and we say, Oh Lord, what a mess. Lord, deliver me from, from my own mess. But the good news, the gospel is, that when we fail miserably, the gospel remains true. And we can still die to ourselves and seek God's blessing and His resurrection. And this requires humility. Death always requires humility. We bury dead people in the ground. Death requires humility. But then, of course, God is no respecter of persons. The gospel always requires humility. And Peter received Paul's rebuke. And at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Peter defended Paul. So the law of love means that we need to get it right. Death, then life. Faith, then obedience. I almost put type than anti-type, but that would have been backwards. Once we have the anti-type, we have the law. That was the type. It was the type of God's love. It was, it was a, a beacon, a marker pointing the people to the Messiah. 
But once we have the Messiah, we can't give him back up for the law. No more type. The type is gone. Those of the circumcision held standards that they thought were higher than Paul's and Peter's. But they were wrong. Their standards were lower than Paul's and Peter's. Their commitment to the law was commendable, except for their confusion of type and anti-type. They were putting the cart before the horse. And as Paul has so deftly laid out, love is greater than law. Grace is greater than merit. And Peter's actions were an illegal excommunication of saints. A denial of the gospel. Once we've received the gospel, we must reject all the partial gospels out there. We must reject all idolatry. Once we know Jesus, we must keep him front and center on our radar. If we will give up all that we are and trust him to build us up, then we can truly live to God, dead to the law. The life we live in the flesh, like Paul, can be and ought to be lived by faith in the Son of God, and that means by the law of love, which will result in faithful and glorious communion and community. This is all about us living together as a family. This is all about me dying for you, and you dying for you, and you dying for her, and her dying for him. Instead of the division and suffering which Peter's misdeed caused the Gentiles in Antioch, the law of love will deliver us as a bride, Christ's church, pure, free from spot and wrinkle, living in peace and harmony to the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus has answered 
the great problem that we have been struggling with since the fall. Sin has been dealt with, and this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the free grace of our loving God. And if that's not enough to make us shout, hallelujah, then we are not getting it yet. So hallelujah. Praise be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The communion table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ. But you bread and drink the wine with us, your God, and you for us. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.